18, verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Search us, O God, and know us, and reveal in us any grievous way, and lead us in the way everlasting. Do that for us through your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, since Jesus tells a story, I thought I would start with a story. Whenever I pick a story, I always try to use like an actual personal name, and I hope nobody has this last name in here. If you do, I did not intend to be this to be about you. But the Johnson family had just moved into their very first house, and they were thrilled about it because it was brand new construction. Every appliance was working, that the walls were unblemished, the counters were pristine and sparkling, and all was well in the world, or so they thought. The first time the Johnson family started to wonder if there was trouble in paradise was when only after a few weeks living in this brand new house, everyone in the family started to get sick. At first they thought perhaps maybe they just caught some virus that someone else had given to them all at the same time. But then they had to bring one of their children to the hospital to get treated because he was so sick. And they were shocked when the doctor asked them if they were potentially living in a house that was infested with mold. The parents' first reaction was, that's not possible. Our, our house is brand new. But the doctor insisted that they hire a mold inspector just in case they needed to rule it out. So they reluctantly complied and were greatly relieved that they did. Because the mold detector, as he was going through the house, discovered that large amounts of construction debris, which had not been cleaned up, had been sucked into one of the air conditioning vents. And so as the AC was constantly running in the Florida heat, moisture was constantly building up on the debris. And as moisture was constantly building up on the debris, mold started to grow. And so as the AC was running, as the mold was growing, it was just being piped throughout the house. And they were essentially living and breathing day and night in a toxic, poisonous environment. So on the surface, from all external appearances, they were living in a pristine, unblemished, sparkling house. But in reality, under the surface of what you could see from external appearances, they were living in a mold-infested home that was poisoning them. Now, why do I tell that story? I tell it because it vividly illustrates the spiritual vice that Jesus is warning about in this parable. Jesus is telling a story to highlight what has been called the spiritual mold of the Christian life, namely self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is as dangerous and poisonous and toxic 
as it is often difficult to see and detect. It often dwells in people and churches and ministries that on the surface and from all external appearances seem religiously pristine, unblemished, sparkling, but in reality, under the surface, there lies growing in the darkness the spiritual mold of self-righteousness exerting its toxic, poisonous influence. So Jesus, in this parable, is the great spiritual mold detector. And he tells us this parable because he wants us to be warned and be wise about the dangers of self-righteousness. And so with that in mind, as we walk through this parable, here's the question that I want you to have lingering in the back of your mind as we walk through this. Is the spiritual mold of self-righteousness growing in your own heart? Is the spiritual mold of self-righteousness growing in your own heart? So we're going to do three things. We're going to examine this parable, walk through it in the details, understand it. Then we're going to allow this parable to examine us as God intended it. And then we're going to seek to apply this parable to our own hearts and lives. So just those three things. So let's examine the parable. And as we go through this parable and the details, you'll notice that Jesus tells the story by placing things together in pairs as he moves from beginning to end. So there's two targets at the beginning. Then there's two men walking. Then there's two prayers that are prayed. And then there's two verdicts that are rendered in this parable. So that's how we're going to walk through it. First, two targets. In other words, what is Jesus aiming at in this parable? What is his intent and goal and focus in telling this story? Because make no mistake, Jesus is a surgical storyteller. When he tells stories, he's holding a scalpel in his hands and he intends to do some surgery on our hearts and he is aimed at cutting something out. So what is that surgical scalpel of his storytelling aimed at in our hearts and lives? Well, guess what? You don't have to guess. No speculation is needed. No guesswork is required in this parable because Luke tells us exactly what Jesus is aiming at. Look at verse nine. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, target one, and treated others with contempt, target number two. So two targets in this parable, the self-righteous and the others condemning. So when Jesus takes the arrow of this parable and he seeks to aim it, he is aiming at these targets, the heart of someone who says to themselves, you know, I'm doing quite well spiritually, and I'm certainly doing better than you and you and you. That's who Jesus is aiming at in this parable. Now, I say two targets, but it's, it's really one, okay? It's not as if these things are totally separate, independent, unrelated vices. In fact, self-righteousness and others condemning relate together like the root system of a tree to the fruit that grows on a tree. You can't have one without the other. Where there is self-righteousness in the heart, in the root system of the soul, guess what happens? It produces the fruit of others condemning attitude, others condemning speech, and others condemning mentality. You cannot have one without the other. So those are the two targets. Now the two men. So Jesus introduces the two men who will serve as the two main characters of the story in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. So, so we're made, as the audience of this story, to imagine ourselves from this point of view. So imagine that you're sitting on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the Temple Mount, and you're, you're sitting there that morning eating your breakfast of uh, 
fishes and loaves. That's probably what they ate for breakfast. And you're watching the Levites get ready for that morning sacrifice where, where they would gather the Jewish people together for that, that morning worship service. They would bookend the day every day with morning and evening sacrifices and calls to worship. And you see, as you're eating your breakfast, walking up just over the crest of the hill, that Pharisee that you recognize from your subdivision of Palestine. And you know him because he's always reciting large sections of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, even Numbers and Deuteronomy out loud in the streets. And you recognize him because he's the one who in the public square is praying grand prayers that you're very impressed with. And you recognize him because he's the one who's always handing out money to the orphans and widows in the marketplace so they can buy unleavened bread. And then near him, but clearly trying to keep his distance from him, you recognize that tax collector from your local subdivision of Palestine who is always showing up your house at the half moon time of every month to collect taxes from you, and every month that percentage seems to keep creeping up without any apparent reason at all. Now, why has Jesus selected these two men to be the main characters that you're watching walk up into the temple to pray? Because when it comes to public opinion at that time and public perception of one's spiritual standing before the Lord, these two men could not be on further extremes of the, of, the pole, of the opinion polls of who is righteous before the Lord. So he takes the extremes, the Pharisee and the tax collector, because public opinion, public perception is that they're at extreme opposite poles of spiritual status. So let's say you, you got a hold of a first century picture dictionary and you look up the word righteous and spiritually mature and pious. Underneath that, you would see a picture of a Pharisee right underneath it. And the job description of a Pharisee at that time was really three simple things. Study the law thoroughly, keep it meticulously, and enforce it very strictly. That was the job and operating mode of a Pharisee. Now that same first century picture dictionary, if you look up the word immoral or compromiser or extortioner or traitor, underneath that you would see a picture of a tax collector. A tax collector was a Jewish person who was employed by all people, by the Romans, to force their fellow Jews to take their hard-earned money, to give it to them so they could give it to the Romans, while charging a little extra on top so they could line their own pockets and increase their own lifestyle. So a tax collector was not just hated. They were hated, hated, Hated. So if you want to emphasize something in the Bible, you emphasize it to the third degree. Holy, holy, holy. Tax collectors were hated, hated, hated. Employed by the Romans? How dare you? Collecting taxes from me, as every good libertarian in the first century knew, taxation is theft, okay? And extracting more than is necessary to increase your own lifestyle? Who do you think you are? These people were despised. So from our vantage point at Mount Olives, eating our breakfast, seeing the Pharisee walking up to the temple, we would have thought, what an impressive guy. What a standout spiritual stud. If only I knew as much scripture as he did or could pray as well as he does or was as generous as he is. That would have been the mindset, watching this man walk up to the temple. But on seeing the tax collector near him but not too close to him walking up to the temple, we would have had quite different thoughts. What a scoundrel. What a lowlife. Who does this dog think he is that he can approach such a holy place? I hope the Lord strikes him down before he even gets into the building. That's what we would have thought. So two men, now two prayers. 
So we get to hear, we get to kind of move from the Mount of Olives right next to them in the temple and hear them pray. The reason we get to hear their prayers, this wasn't uncommon. Nobody prayed quietly. If you prayed quietly in your heart, you were strange and weird at that time. Everyone prayed out loud. So even if you go to Jerusalem today, it's called the Wailing Wall near the Temple Mount where it's exposed. Everyone prays out loud. So it's not necessarily wrong that they're praying out loud. But we get to hear what they pray. And in hearing the Pharisee pray first, as we look at this prayer, ask yourself this question. What's really wrong with this prayer? Is, is there anything really wrong with this prayer? Notice how it starts. God, I thank you. Now, this sounds like the beginning of a good Thanksgiving meal. This is a very God-centered prayer of gratitude. Is there anything wrong with that? Now, it goes on. I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So notice, he's acknowledging God's grace in his life for keeping him from these lifestyles that the law condemned and forbid it. He knows that it's God's grace that is the cause of me not being these things. Is, is there anything wrong with that? And then he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now you're only required to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. You're only required to give tithes of a couple things in your, in your household. So he, he's going above and beyond the law, acknowledging that God has enabled him to do more than he's asked for. You're not, you're not forbidden from doing more than you asked for. But he's thanking God for enabling him to go above and beyond the minimum requirements of the law. Is there anything wrong with that? Every first century Jewish mother who heard that prayer from their boy's lips would have said, I'm proud of my son. That's my boy. They would have been excited. Every rabbi of a local synagogue who heard someone praying like that would have said, I really hope he joins my local synagogue. I could use his tithing of everything that he owns. Everyone who would have heard that would have thought, you know, using an athletic metaphor would have been saying, I'm glad he's on my team. I'm glad he's with us. So what's wrong with the prayer? Well, as you probably saw, there's plenty wrong with the prayer. Most importantly, as one person said, it is an idolatrous prayer. Emphasis on the word or the letter I. It is filled with himself and it is really empty of God. He acknowledges God at the beginning and that's the last time he talks about him. I, I, I. His prayer is really self-praise and self-promotion disguised as a prayer. His prayer reveals that he is resting not on the mercy of God, but on his own merits, which he is very impressed with and which he keeps very close track of. He keeps such good track of his merits that he has lost sight of his need for the mercy of God. His prayer reveals that he has much higher thoughts of himself than he does of God. He believes that God is more fortunate to have him than he is to have God. And his prayer reveals a heart that is so full of the love of self that there is no room for love of neighbor. He only can condemn his neighbor and thank God that he's not like them. Now he's thinking about a lot of other people, but not in the way we're ought to be thinking. He's thinking of them in terms of condemnation, not in terms of compassion. So in other words, this prayer is ungodly and a stench in the nostrils of the Lord because it is littered with the mold of spiritual self-righteousness. It is littered with the spiritual mold of self-righteousness. Now turn our attention to verse 13 and look at the prayer of the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even deign to lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, 
Not a sinner, but literally the sinner. Some of your translations might say a sinner. Some might say the sinner. I think it is actually quite important. I don't mean to be nitpicky. That it, ju- that it says the sinner, not just a sinner. There is the definite article being used here. He is definitively identifying himself as the sinner. And here's why that's important. In contrast to the Pharisee, whose prayer is filled with comparison to other people, the tax collector isn't saying that other that group of people called sinners, I'm one of them. No, he won't even compare himself to anyone else. He believes he is in a category all by himself, that he is the chief of sinners. He doesn't even dare place himself in a group. He sets himself aside and says, I am the sinner. I am the worst sinner I know. And he throws himself, he he makes one request. It's interesting. The Pharisee's prayer looks righteous because he doesn't make any requests, but it's actually self-promotion and self-praise. The tax collector makes one request, and it's the one request that's necessary. Be merciful to me, the sinner. There's nothing fancy about it. There's nothing flowery about it. It's, It's quite short, quite concise, But it is a beautiful prayer because it comes from a broken and contrite heart that the Lord loves and delights in. The one prayer, a stench, although it sounds sweet. The other, short and yet sweet because it comes from a broken and contrite heart. Now, two results. So look at verse 14. And trying to put yourself in the position of the early audience that's listening to this, the original audience that's listening to this, at this point, they're still wondering, what, why is Jesus telling this parable? Like, what, what's, what's the point of contrasting the Pharisee with the tax collector? And what's going to happen to the two? And they're still thinking, I, I bet the Pharisee is going to be commended. And I bet the tax collector is going to be told, how dare you come into here praying and asking for mercy when you have treated others the way you have treated them? That's the verdict they're expecting to be rendered. And so Jesus shocks and scandalizes the ears of his audience when he says this. I tell you, this man, that man who comes to your house every month, collecting taxes for the Romans and taking extra off the top, this man who begged for mercy, even though he doesn't deserve it, he went home justified. He went home acquitted, not guilty, no condemnation, right in the eyes of the law, accepted by God, rather than the other. The Pharisee went home guilty, guilty as charged, acquitted of no crimes. He went home condemned. And Jesus says, here's why. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, Jesus is saying, everyone who comes to God full of themselves will be left empty. They will walk away from that experience empty. And everyone who comes to God empty of themselves will walk away filled and overflowing and full. They will walk away not guilty, acquitted of all charges, in the right, in the eyes of the law. This was shocking because for them, the audience at this time, the standard of righteousness was the Pharisee. The standard of unrighteousness was a tax. And Jesus is reversing these because of the repentance, the pleading for mercy of the tax collector. That's the parable. Now, we need to allow the parable to examine us. Parables are not just meant to be stories we read, fascinating, interesting, exciting. They're stories that Jesus tells because he wants them to read us, to search us out, and to expose our hearts. That's why I posed the question at the beginning, 
of the sermon. Is the spiritual mold of self-righteousness growing in your own heart? You're not meant to listen to this as a passive spectator watching a drama unfold. You're meant to listen to this actively, seeking to apply that question to your own heart and life. Because self-righteousness is deadly. It is poisonous. It is toxic. It will kill Christian joy. It will destroy a good, healthy Christian church because it only produces rotten fruit. So you, you think of um, the Disney movie uh, Snow White. Who, what's, I think she's the one who eats the fruit. Self-righteousness, that's the kind of fruit self-righteousness produces, the kind that that wicked woman gave to Snow White that poisons people. When we eat of self-righteous fruit, it kills Christian joy. It kills Christian fellowship because it produces fruit like this. It produces a fruit of complacency. Instead of being dependent on the Lord or spiritually vigilant or spiritually sober-minded or spiritually awake, your attitude is generally, I'm doing just fine. No problems here. I'm, I'm doing better than them at least, so why, why do I need to worry or be concerned or be active or be dependent? You're complacent. So does complacency describe your dominant spiritual attitude? Are you coasting in the Christian life? When was the last time you admitted to someone else that in some area of your life you're not okay and you could use their counsel and help and encouragement? The answer is never, either miraculously, you are righteous and better than everyone else, or you're self-righteous. Self-righteousness is deadly because it produces the fruit of comparison and competition. Instead of being in fellowship with other Christians, as we're called to be, the one and others, instead of encouraging and being encouraged, instead of sharing others' joys and sorrows, everything is a comparison and competition game because self-righteousness is not satisfied with being good. It won't stop until it's better than someone else. It can't just be good. It must be better than. Just to validate yourself, you have to find someone else that you can say, I'm better than them. So it produces comparison and competition. So do you find yourself falling into the comparison and competition trap? Are you constantly measuring and evaluating your spiritual state against this person or that person, this family or that family? Even for a church, are we, are we constantly saying, well, hey, we might be doing things well, but at least we're not, you know, Christ Fellowship or something like that, you know? <laughs> Just trying to be honest, okay? Which leads me to my next point. It produces the fruit of a critical spirit. Self-righteousness, one of the the most common fruits that grows on the tree of it, is a critical spirit. So instead of seeing evidences of God's grace in the lives of others, instead of seeing fuel for encouragement in the lives of others, instead of seeing what, what other churches are doing and how they're blessing the community, everything in your mindset or in your speech is, you need to work on this. Why haven't you done that? I can't believe they do this or believe that or think this. Everything is critical, critical, critical. Here's a good question to ask. Are those around you and closest to you more encouraged by you or discouraged by you? Are they more aware of your correction or your affection? One of the the best questions someone told me to ask myself as a parent was, are your kids more aware of your correction or your affection? Because if it's the former, you have an issue. When you sit under the teaching of the word, the preaching of the word, listening to podcasts, listening to sermons, are you thinking primarily about what the Lord is saying to you or what you hope he is saying to someone else? Right? You sat there in a sermon saying, 
I hope so-and-so is listening. I can't believe so-and-so is not here. They really ought to hear this. Also, self-righteousness is dangerous because it produces the fruit of blindness and numbness to your own sins and shortcomings. Unchecked self-righteousness is like the spiritual equivalent of experiencing frostbite. And this takes some explaining, obviously, in this setting. But frostbite is when you go out and it is so cold. And when I say so cold, I mean in Minnesota, negative 20 degrees, where you, you can take a, a boiling pot of pan, throw it outside, and it disappears before it even hits the ground. And you go outside, and at first you can feel how cold it is. But if you stay out there too long with too much exposed skin, guess what happens after a certain amount of time? You don't feel cold anymore. And that is not a good thing. That is very dangerous. It means that your nerves have been so damaged by the cold that they actually have stopped functioning. Your blood flow has stopped working so that you cannot get blood flow to your nerve endings so that you feel it's cold and you need to get inside or wear some mittens, like Mama said, okay? That's what self-righteousness does. It makes us spiritually blind and numb to our own sins and shortcomings. For so long, we think we're so good that we don't actually see where we're falling short and need the mercy of God, need the help of others. So ask yourself this question. When was the last time you had to go to someone and say, will you please forgive me for blank? I sinned against you and I need your forgiveness. If the answer is never, or it's been a long time, Again, it's either because miraculously you have not sinned against someone else in the last five to ten years or because you're self-righteous and spiritually blind because of it. When was the last time before the Lord, without any show, others watching, you grieved over your sin and prayed like the tax collector did? I'm not saying you had to cry tears. I'm not, tear ducts and, and water amount isn't the issue here. But a, a true, from the heart, brokenness and contrition before the Lord because you, you, you saw your sin in a fresh way. Not conjured up, not you know, some camp experience or you know, chapel or something like that, but a legitimate one, you and the Lord, you were grieved over your sin. Now, if the answer is never, it's been a long time. Again, miraculously, it could be because you've never sinned before the Lord or because you struggle with self-righteousness and are blinded because of it. Now that you're feeling sufficiently convicted and guilty, I hope, how do we apply this parable to our own hearts and lives? How do we, by God's grace, better recognize and remove the spiritual mold of self-righteousness from our own hearts? I don't have all the answers, but here's a couple that I found helpful and beneficial. One, learn to repent of your righteousness. Learn to repent of your righteousness. When we think of confession and repentance, we often think of sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission. The law says, don't do this, and I did that. It's wrong. Lord, forgive me. Or the law says, oh, sins of omission. The law says, do this, and I didn't do it. Lord, forgive me. But there is even another category, as it were. There's ways that we obey the law, and what it says to not do, and do. But in our hearts, we do it with the wrong motive and sinful intent. So learning to repent of your righteousness is learning to examine your hearts for ways you even do the right thing with the wrong motive and the wrong intent. The issue with the Pharisee in his prayer was that his view of his obedience was all external and skin deep only. He, he viewed the Bible as like a flashlight. You look for, when you're in the woods in you know, northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, whatever, you use a flashlight because you're looking for ticks. He had no ticks on him, he's good. Jesus says the law is an x-ray machine. It's not just looking at the surface. It is looking deep into the inner recesses of the heart. It looks at not just action, but motive and intent 
as well. And that's where the Pharisee missed it. His righteousness was skin deep because he used the Bible as a flashlight, not as an x-ray machine. So what ways do we do the right thing with the wrong motive and intent? Now, to want it to be specific and more helpful, I'm not trying to be uh, telling my own stories to be authentic and honest and real as it is in these days. But as I was examining this parable, think about this. You know, on the trip we drove, we drove about 66 hours total in the car. That's a lot of driving. And, and I did most of it because that's the kind of guy I am, you know, right? I think I drove 65 of the 66 hours. And I thought to myself at one point, you know, way to go. You know, way to take, let your wife just kind of relax and read and, and you know, do her thing. You know why I drove? Because I think I'm a better driver and I don't like not being in control. That's why I drove, okay? So on the surface, externally, it looks like, what a great husband. I mean, she's doing her preparations for homeschooling, all these things. What a good guy. On the inside, when you look at the x-ray machine of the word, it's because I think I'm better at driving than she is. Right or wrong, I don't know. And it's because I need to be in control. I can't sit in the passenger seat while other cars are moving and she's moving the vehicle. I have to be in control. Can I get an amen from the man, please? Okay, thank you. (laughs) Learn to repent of your righteousness. Examine your heart for ways you say, God, I thank you that I am not like blank. Where where do you find yourself in just your normal everyday life and routine, looking at others, seeing them do something, and you think, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. You might not pray. You you don't write it in your prayer journal. You don't, you know, tweet it or whatever. Exit, I don't know what it's called these days, but whatever. Where do you do that? That is a perfect place to find where you're self-righteous and say, Lord, forgive me for pouring contempt on them. Now, at risk of being specific for me, when, when I'm traveling, you know, we were traveling a lot, stopping a lot of places. When I see someone wearing a mask, I am very self-righteous about it. I think, Lord, I, help, I pray they get the help they need, okay? And I say, God, I thank you that I'm not like fear-driven mask wearers. I, you know, I, I trust in the resurrection. I know, you know, it's outdated science, whatever. I have all these thoughts in my head. And yet, I don't, I don't know why they're doing that. I've never talked to them. I've never had a conversation with them. I've never met them. I have no understanding of their motive intent, but yet I have cast judgment on them. And so I have to repent of that. So where do you say, God, I thank you that I'm not like blank? And sometimes we even need to repent of our self-righteousness about self-righteousness, right? It's easy to invert this parable. Like there was a story of the Sunday school teacher who was teaching the kids this parable. And she said, now that we understand the parable, kids, let's pray. She said, God, we thank you that we are not like Pharisees. What'd she do? She switched the parable, committed the same issue in a different direction. We can look at others who appear to us to be legalistic, hypocritical, overly scrupulous, and start to pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like that teetotaler, that I'm not like that person over there who, who won't do this or that on this day or that day. God, I thank you that we allow our kids to watch PG-13 movies unlike that you know, other person over there. So what ways are you self-righteous about others' self-righteousness? So learn to repent of your righteousness. Secondly, how to recognize and remove self-righteousness. Seek to convert condemnation into compassion. So our default mode often is to begin when seeing someone else do something we disagree with is to cast judgment on them rather than extend compassion to them. We need to switch the default operating mode of our human heart, which starts with casting judgment rather than extending compassion. So when seeing someone who maybe... Uh, you disagree with or who acts in a way that's, that you don't agree with, start by extending the grace of charity. Extending the grace of charity means 
They are innocent until proven guilty rather than guilty with little hopes of being proven innocent. So if you see someone who, different political sphere than you, different um, choices about this or that thing, extend the grace of charity and say, you know what, I, I don't know why they're doing that. So I'm just going to say, you know, they have their reasons. And until I know otherwise, I'm not going to sit here and, and cast condemnation on them. And then in light of that, to convert condemnation and compassion, seek to understand before rendering a judgment. The best judgments are rendered when you have the most amount of information and the right kind of information. And oftentimes we have zero to little information and we're, we're ready to you know, play hammering the gavel right then and there. So if there's someone you disagree with and, and you're struggling with self-righteousness toward them, sit down with them and just ask them, hey, why do you do X? Or I've wondered about why. And in hearing them, that goes a long way to converting condemnation into compassion. And pray for those whom you disagree with or see acting in your mind in the wrong. Oftentimes, when we fall into the comparison and condemnation trap, when that's our default operating mode, our whole life is an us versus them, an us against them mentality. I mean, we see that in the political landscape and we hate it, and yet we perpetuate it when we allow self-righteousness to, to brew and boil in our own hearts and lives. That's why Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who do evil against you. Do not return evil for evil. Because Christianity is meant to be an us for them mentality. We are for you. We want you to come to Christ. Nothing will corrode and destroy evangelism and the appeal of Christianity more than self-righteousness. And yet nothing will be more appealing than a compassionate, considerate willingness to extend charity to others. And then most importantly, to remove self-righteousness, rehearse the joys of justification. Rehearse the joys of justification. This parable ends with the verdict, he went home justified. This is why it's important. Self-righteousness flows often from a lack of assurance that we are justified in the sight of God, that God has declared us not guilty, accepted in the right, in the eyes of the law. And when we lack assurance of that, we have to find our validation and acceptance some other way. If we don't really believe that God accepts us on the basis of what Christ has done, then we have to find some way to validate and make ourselves acceptable. And the best way to do that is to perform, compare, condemn, and all these other things that self-righteousness breeds in our heart. The end game of this parable is not just to warn us against the dangers of self-righteousness demonstrated by the Pharisee. It's to bring us to the place where we are broken and contrite like the tax collector because we realize two things. Our goodness will never be good enough and our self-righteousness is bad enough to condemn us. And so we, all we can do is join with the tax collector and praying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Have you been brought to that place? Is your faith a self-renouncing, merit-despairing faith that sings, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling? That would be great if if all of our life we had a self-despairing, merit-renouncing faith And yet what we often notice what the Lord does throughout our Christian life is we do hold on to things. We do come with hands partially full. And guess what the Lord does for us? He starts to pry our hands off of those things. You think, 
Lane talked last week about our reputation. We often use our reputation as a validation and acceptance. And the Lord will bring us to a place where, guess what? Our reputation is gone. It's out the window. It's, it's, it's part of the past. Because the Lord wants to pry our fingers off of those things so that we would cling to him. So if your faith is a self-renouncing, merit-despairing faith, I have good news for you. The very same verdict that God pronounced that day over that ta- tax collector, he pronounces over you. That verdict is your verdict. You are justified in the cosmic courtroom of heaven by the ultimate judge whose verdict is the only one that matters ultimately and eternally. He says, justified, not condemned, not guilty, accepted. You are justified, meaning in the most simple terms that God treats you just as if I'd never sinned. Think of justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to have that legal courtroom verdict pronounced over you. It means God treats you just as if I'd never sinned. So kids, picture it like this. You're told to clean your room. You don't clean your room. You come like the tax collector, beating your chest in an authentic way. Okay, don't try this at home. And you say, mom, be merciful to me, the sinner. And she says, you know what? It's clean. It's fine. Even It's not clean, but she declared it clean. She treats you just as if you'd cleaned your room. That's what it means to be justified, just as if I'd never sinned. In the cosmic courtroom of heaven, your debt is canceled, your record is cleared, and your stain is washed clean. How is that possible? How can the just God justify the unjust? How can God be just by justifying the unjust? Here's how. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counterfeit. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's how God can be just in justifying the unjust. The Father treats us just as if I never sinned because, get this, the one person in the history of the world who had real legitimate cause for self-righteousness. Have you thought about that? The one person who could ever say, I am self-righteous. Jesus, whose merits were truly genuine from action to motive to intent, came to die in the place of every chest-beating tax collector and every self-renouncing, self-righteous Pharisee. The cross, where Jesus trades his righteousness for our sinfulness, is the Father's yes to the tax collector's prayer. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The Father says, yes, I will. When you realize that Christ and Christ alone is the grounds of your being treated just as if I'd never sinned, complacency will change into a childlike dependency. The comparison trap will change into gratitude and encouragement. A critical spirit will change into extending the grace of charity. And blindness and numbness will change into humility and joyfulness. Let's pray for God to do that work in our hearts and in our church.